Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast installation of Sibylline's Insight series. We today look at an update on the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan that has drawn in regional powers, Turkey and Russia. For that, I'm joined by Liana Semchuk, our lead analyst for Europe and Eurasia, and Alex Lord, our analyst for Eurasia. Following that, James Barth, our North America analyst, and Amy Reynolds, deputy Insight team manager, uh, will join me for a discussion regarding the U.S. election outcome and whether or not our fears of unrest and violence find us in the eye of the hurricane, or if instead the hurricane has dissipated into a mild tropical storm. Following more than a month of intense fighting, which increasingly threatened an escalation to an outright regional war, on November 10th, in a remarkable turn of events, Armenia and Azerbaijan reached a truce following Azerbaijan's continued offensive, which saw the capture of several regions, including the taking of the strategic town of Shushi. Armenia then accepted defeat. While the agreement sparked celebrations in Baku, angry crowds in Yerevan immediately took to the streets, broke into the parliament building, and are continuing their calls for Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan to resign. The deal looks to have averted a major war, which threatened to draw in other regional powers, such as Russia and Turkey. However, the agreement has nonetheless thrown Armenia into a political crisis. In the meantime, the situation benefits Russia as it not only managed to avoid a military confrontation on behalf of Armenia, but it also reaffirmed its position as the major power broker in the region. So, Liana and Alex, you know, thanks again for joining us. If one of you would uh, be so kind as to kind of share with us your your latest breakdown on the situation in Armenia and Azerbaijan and how the conflict has evolved uh, since the last discussion we had on the matter. Indeed. Uh, Thank you, Greg. Uh, Yes, so there have certainly been a lot of developments around the situation since we last spoke about it, which first really captured everyone's eye back on the 27th of September when the fighting between the two sides saw its first major flare-up in in a long time. But as you mentioned, since 10th of November, the risk of armed conflict has greatly declined between the two countries, and they managed to have reached an agreement, which was overseen by Russia, And according to the available reports, the peace deal is holding so far, which is quite um, development given the fact that the previous three ceasefire agreements were broken within minutes and hours of being signed. Um, So in this particular case, um, essentially Armenia had very little choice but to um, admit defeat given how the events have been playing out in recent weeks. As we said before, Azerbaijan was much more superior militarily um, in relation to Armenia, and it also had a crucial backing of Turkey to a much greater extent than Armenia had the backing of Moscow, which was much more reluctant to openly engage on behalf of Armenia um, in fears of spoiling its relationship with Azerbaijan in the process. There have also been at least two distinct events, more or less, I think, that made this deal at this particular time relatively inevitable. 
Uh, firstly, on the 7th of November, Azerbaijan has made um, some major battlefield gains, uh, including the capture of a strategic town of Shusha, which uh, lies very closely to Nagorno-Karabakh's capital, Stepankat, and essentially the capture of this town uh, more or less meant that the Armenian side was defeated. In a separate um, event, which quite in interesting in terms of its timing, was that on the 9th of November, very late on 9th of November, um, Azerbaijan accidentally shot down a Russian helicopter over Armenian territory, which could have led to a massive escalation between Russia and Azerbaijan, and I think could also have been a factor that then forced Baku to, to accept the agreement and brought all of the sides together um, in, the, in the process. So speaking of, of this agreement, I think so far the full details of, it, of which are cur uh, currently relatively vague, we don't know all of them, but uh, what we do know is that Azerbaijan will get to keep the territory in the region and the surrounding areas that it managed to capture during the recent fighting since the 27th of September. Um, and then Armenia is also due to transfer some other parts of the regions in, in phases throughout the course of this month and into December. One of the most crucial points as well is the fact that the deal will now include the deployment of Russian peacekeeping troops to Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, reports from, from Russia indicate that some have already been dispatched to the region. They're due to stay there for at least five years. Uh, and that's a very key development for, for Russia, I think, as well, because not only does this reinforce the fact that the likelihood of this agreement holding will increase, but also reinforces Russia's position on the ground. So again, all of this has been quite, quite notable and uh, welcome development, I think, in terms of bringing the risk of armed conflict down. But of course, there are few possible reasons to remain cautious, some of which my colleague Alex can touch on in a minute. But I think from my point of view, just a few quick ones to mention, I think, would be the actual status of the region in the short term. I mean, Armenia currently still retains control over parts of, of Nagorno-Karabakh, including the capital. So some potential flashpoints for unrest around that down the line will remain. Another one, I think, will be the interpretation of the agreement to make sure that neither side misinterprets portions of it uh, and lead to potential violations. And lastly, I think the role of Turkey will also remain a concern, um, given the fact that they did not sign any part of this agreement. So they have proven to be quite a challenge in the conflict in the past. And President Aliyev continues to assert that Turkey should play a role still, even though they have no formal stake in the agreement at the moment. So, so those are just some things to look out for. But at the moment, the indications uh, suggest that the agreement is holding unlike the previous ones. Wonderful. Thank you, Liana. So Alex, then turning to you, what are some of the other potential developments around this that you're looking at over the coming weeks? Yeah, thanks, Greg. As um, Liana mentioned, the most immediate events to sort of watch will be the handovers of various occupied territories back to Azerbaijan. So according to the agreement, about sort of seven of the regions that Armenia have occupied since the 90s in the um, earlier war uh, will be returned. Um, so the first one will be Agdam on the 15th of November, so the end of this week. But I think the most tense handover will be of Lachin province in the west. So Lachin is a very important region um, and it's seen quite a lot of heavy fighting 
or fighting move towards that region in recent weeks. Basically, the region connects Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh itself. So by returning that very strategically important region back to Azerbaijan, the region of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia are sort of disconnected. Now, the agreement has stipulated a five-kilometre wide corridor will be maintained along that region to connect Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh. So Russian peacekeepers will be there, but it's nevertheless quite a tense, that will be a tense handover, I would have thought, um, of all of the territories that have to go back. Looking more broadly, and again, similar to what Liana touched on, the major issue, I think, with this agreement, although it's reasonably comprehensive so far, it's the complete absence of any sort of settlement or even anticipation of what the future status of Nagorno-Karabakh will actually be. So we understand that Azerbaijan will be able to retain control over the parts of Nagorno-Karabakh that it took in recent weeks in the fighting, and that the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh will remain under ethnic Armenian control. But the actual agreement doesn't stipulate any of the long-term arrangements for this. So we don't know whether the Armenians will remain in control of of the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh in the long term, whether there will be some sort of, again, another phased withdrawal and transition of authority over to Azerbaijan. So ultimately, I think what we're seeing here is because the most difficult part of this whole conflict, and it's ultimately the reason why Armenia and Azerbaijan have been fighting for a number of decades, that decision has been kicked down the road. So while this Russian brokered agreement was very much a very important step, and we are definitely seeing stable and the, big, the most significant steps towards a resolution of the conflict in, since the conflict really began, really, we have seen that basically this agreement refreezes the conflict. So the agreement has prevented Baku from completely retaking Nagorno-Karabakh militarily. But at the moment, because the deployment of Russian peacekeepers makes a sort of resumption of full-blown fighting much less likely now, we are seeing that we're going back into the diplomatic phase potentially. And there's a lot of scope for uh, misunderstandings, as Liana mentioned, but also sort of disagreement over the actual status of Nagorno-Karabakh going forward. So what could that look like? So we could see potentially an autonomy agreement um, put forward. This idea has been around for a number of decades since the 1994 ceasefire, because obviously Nagorno-Karabakh itself is mostly occupied by ethnic Armenians. So that's the sort of um, reason why these people are fighting. So we could see some sort of autonomy within Azerbaijan, but President Aliyev, president of Azerbaijan, he's been quite strong in his rhetoric since the agreement was announced, basically saying that the status of Nagorno-Karabakh is very much not on the cards, really, that it's going to be Azeri again. So we'll have to wait and see. This leaves a huge hole open, basically. The major issue, what the status of Nagorno-Karabakh will be, isn't actually addressed in this agreement. But the presence of Russian peacekeepers and the willingness to return occupied territories back to Azerbaijan, that's a huge step forward for the conflict. So we're definitely going in the right direction. 
You got it. Thank you. And then so outside kind of the, the halls of diplomacy and, and, and regional geopolitics, how is this being perceived domestically uh, inside both countries? So perhaps unsurprisingly, um, th this was quite a great cause for celebration in, in Azerbaijan. The campaign all along had quite a strong backing from the public, which saw um, the deal quite as a huge win. There are large crowds celebrating on the streets even now. You know, moreover, the country Azerbaijan managed to reclaim a significant chunk of the territory without triggering a wider war or creating an even greater humanitarian crisis in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, which was a rising concern after the forces took Shushi, and uh, which, again, as I mentioned, lies closely to the capital, Stepankat, and concerns were rising that an even greater humanitarian toll um, would increase as a result of, of, a, of a likely offensive. But luckily, that was prevented, although the losses have been great so far. Um, regardless. Um, but needless to say, um, the situation looks very different uh, in Armenia at the moment, and the news triggered very angry protests in the capital as well as throughout the country. Immediately upon announcement, um, hundreds of demonstrators stormed into the government buildings, into the parliament, and called on Prime Minister Pashinyan to resign. Opposition parties also continued to call for his resignation and essentially blame him for capitulating to, to Azerbaijan. Um, so it, it's a little difficult to say at the moment how everything is going to play out because uh, at the moment the situation on the ground in our media is very unstable and Alex can touch more on this as well, but it looks very likely that the Prime Minister might actually be forced to resign given the fact that protests are currently still ongoing. He has refused to do so so far, at least at this particular moment, and Armenian police have been detaining several um, high-profile opposition leaders and some anti-government demonstrators during the rallies on the 11th of November and the 12th of November. So we do expect the situation to remain quite volatile in the days ahead. Uh, but at the moment, there is also not a clear replacement for Pashinyan. So again, this discontinued domestic unrest and lack of clear clear replacement will, will drive a lot of political instability in the days ahead. Great, thank you. And well, so then turning to you, Alex, with such domestic volatility in Armenia, uh, what sorts of possible outcomes are we possibly expecting there to happen next? Yeah, so as Liana said, things on the ground in Yerevan are pretty um, uncertain at the moment. Pashinyan is under quite a lot of pressure domestically now um, to resign. Interestingly and important to note, this isn't just because of the agreement. So the day before the agreement, 17 opposition parties signed a joint statement calling for his resignation over what they described as the mismanagement of the war. So as Armenia's military position in Nagorno-Karabakh has looked more and more tenuous over the last few weeks of fighting, um, Pashinyan has been under increasing pressure back home domestically as well. So this is very much a culmination in that sort of narrative going, going through. So looking forward, I think the opposition are definitely going to be utilizing and they are utilizing sort of nationalistic sentiment that this agreement is a capitulation, it's a, it's a defeat. So we're definitely going to be seeing potential moves against Pashinyan. We're already seeing quite a lot of unrest um, which are being led by opposition groups. Now it remains uncertain 
how these will play out, particularly because um, a number of prom very prominent opposition leaders were arrested during unrest yesterday on the 11th um, of November. So it's looking uncertain whether any individual will be in a position to challenge Pashinyan. One of the important aspects of this is that Pashinyan came to power only two years ago on the back of popular sort of revolution and which he called, termed the Velvet Revolution. So that's only two years ago. There was a lot of popular support at the time to change the status quo, to change the political status quo and remove um, a number of the um, political elites, the sort of oligarchs that have been retaining control over Armenia for many years. So a lot of the opposition that are calling for Pashinyan's resignation, they don't actually retain all that much support in Armenia itself at the moment. So it's creating an interesting dynamic where certainly the agreement has alienated some of Pashinyan's supporters, and we are seeing um, some of his um, supporters that supported him during the revolution turn against him now. But interestingly, it's not there's no sort of unifying figure from the opposition emerging. And a lot of the opposition figures, they're still quite controversial in Armenia. They're still tied to the old regimes and thus nobody's really coming forward. So we'll be seeing that play out in the coming weeks, I would, I would think. But Pashinyan's position is looking quite tenuous though. Outside of that, we could be looking at potential issues for the agreement itself. Although I think this is probably unlikely, considering the pressure from Russia and the military situation in Nagorno-Karabakh itself, a lot of the opposition parties are calling, the more radical ones, are calling for the agreement to sort of be discounted. It shouldn't have been signed, that sort of thing. So while I think these are quite, it's quite unlikely, this is a risk, although I think there is quite a lot of acceptance and pragmatism that an agreement was ultimately inevitable and that the military situation sort of dictated Armenia's withdrawal from the occupied regions particularly. But I think the absence of any future agreement on the status of Nagorno-Karabakh is very much still in play and we could see the opposition take advantage of that to pressure Pashinyan and his government um, in the coming weeks. Great, thank you. Uh, so maybe then taking a, a bit of a step back for a second, would we suggest then that the, the outcome is, is favorable for Russia or has Moscow's influence been undermined in some ways by the, these kind of the totality of these overall developments? So I think at the, at the moment, the developments have definitely been as favorable as they could be to Russia, but, but perhaps even more so to Putin personally. At least in the short term, it seems to be more or less a win-win situation for, for Russia, as uh, this agreement was essentially able to reaffirm its status as a decision maker in the conflict, um, despite Turkey's emergence as a key player that was backing Azerbaijan. Also, I think with this deal, Russia managed to avoid the one thing that it probably dreaded the most, or one of the things that it probably dreaded the most, which is, again, an armed conflict, as it's always been clear that Russia wanted to maintain nice ties with Azerbaijan and, and Armenia, and so to maintain its, its influence over, over both countries. But I think the, the important thing to mention as well is that the actual deal itself was brokered by Russia without any help from the West, which reinforced Moscow's position again as a leading and influential power broker in the region. 
Not only that, they also managed to not give Turkey a formal role in, in a deal. But again, um, the, as I mentioned earlier, that remains to be to be seen how, how Turkey continues to behave in this, because again, there are some reports from Azerbaijan and, and Turkey as well that they are adamant about playing a role alongside Russian peacekeepers. But again, at the moment, there is no formal involvement. And to that end, I think with Russia's deployment of, of its own peacekeepers, um, they will be able to more or less be the sole power that shapes the developments of, of events on the ground. And, and that's crucial. Um, but, you know, lastly, I think, obviously, Turkey's ties to Azerbaijan and the extent of its influence in the region have definitely been demonstrated throughout this conflict. But I also think that this is something that Russia has anticipated for years, much like it has anticipated and is observing the growing influence of China in Central Asia. And I think that is something that is inevitable in the current world order and something that Russia and other powers in the world just have to adjust to and will need to continue adjusting to. Uh, I think it's ultimately a balanced game, given how the regional environment has, has been impacted by multiple factors, not the least by the, by the pandemic. So I think this particular deal and outcome, for example, are definitely have helped Russia to reinforce its position, at least for now. Terrific, thank you. And and now finally, if I if I may, you know, one one last question. You know, what would we what are we saying to clients that don't have operations in either country, or the immediate periphery? What, what's the wider impact and and potential interest or concern for for their business operations? So I think at the moment, obviously, the a lot of our clients have been watching the conflict quite closely as there were concerns about this escalating, uh, not just within the region, but to large commercial capitals in Azerbaijan and in Yerevan, as well as, again, drawing in wider regional powers. So I think at the moment, the security environment has greatly stabilized and the chance of any mass attack against either capitals has been significantly decreased. So I think that definitely is quite important. I think as well with energy security, of course, there were concerns that potentially critical infrastructure could be targeted, um, such as pipelines, which were running from Azer in Azerbaijan in particular. Um, so again, that has now decreased significantly. So that that is a, a key development. So I think overall, the market might have stabilized a bit more as well with, with Russia, I mean, it's, it's ruble is quite volatile to geopolitical developments and uh, preventing this conflict, at least at least for now, I think only serves serves Moscow and, and wider market there well as well. Yeah, I would um, echo Liana's points. I think one of the most immediate sort of implications to this agreement for clients is that this has moved the process towards a, res a resolution of the conflict much, much closer. So. The South Caucasus, while not be as being quite as volatile as the North Caucasus, um, it still has an element of insecurity, obviously, because of this frozen conflict. So this agreement could definitely see a steady move towards a stabilization of the South Caucasus. And similar to what Liana um, touched on, removing pressure on vital oil pipelines, for example, from um, Azerbaijan through uh, Georgia and Turkey. So the pressure has been slightly alleviated on, on those energy corridors, um, and particularly because the conflict has been, it's been more tightly contained now with the Russian peacekeepers. I think that has a potential to encourage more stabilization across the wider region.
Thank you both. Uh, a, a very illuminating discussion and conversation there. Uh, to Liana and Alex, thank you very much. Uh, and to our clients, uh, should you have any uh, further questions uh, that you'd like to delve into on these issues, uh, please be in touch. And we'd happy to have a, a, an individual conversation discussion with you. Thank you. Here in the U.S., the election now uh, a bit more than a week passed. We've seen far lower levels of unrest than uh, we and everyone else honestly expected in the aftermath. The actual electoral process was also incredibly smooth uh, with limited indications or anecdotes of intimidation or conflict in and around polling stations, thankfully. And in retrospect, with the usual benefit of 2020 hindsight, the, the coverage and prediction of unrest and violence by media and the security industry uh, did not match up to what was observed. But number one, uh, if Trump had won the unrest on the left, certainly would have been far greater as the, as the left wing has been able to garner um, significantly larger, more widespread protests this year, though driven by uh, social issues out, outside of, of, of strict politics. But also then number two, you know, it may be the calm before the storm, or, or perhaps we're looking at uh, being in the middle of the eye of the hurricane with uh, a right wing now that is, it appears to be uh, mobilizing. Um, and, and many believe that the election is, is kind of, quote, not over. There are big protests planned by both right and left wing this weekend, which may have the potential to escalate, uh, especially here neighboring me in the, in the D.C. region, uh, where the, uh, the Million MAGA march uh, will be held on Saturday. James, Amy, uh, thanks for joining. So we can uh, have this discussion on kind of where things stand with the election uh, and what a Biden presidency will mean for the U.S.'s foreign relations, considering Washington's key economic partners and traditional allies, as well as some of its more uh, fraught relationships. Starting off, James, with you, you know, looking at the issue uh, of unrest first, what are some of the uh, most likely triggers for unrest in the coming months? Uh, sure. So I think that this can broadly be split into protests that are related to the election and protests that aren't. Regarding those that are related to the election, I think from the left wing, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see widespread unrest unless Trump continues to refrain from conceding the election or if any of his legislative battles manage to, to find some ground, which is pretty unlikely. As far as the right wing goes, I think that the election going to, to Biden does provide some sort of threat for the right wing protests. I mean, that's, that's been kind of the only consistency the past week, which has kind of seen a, a diminishing in left wing protests. There are still right wing protests going on. We saw a, a handful last night in Washington and just outside San Francisco. But then there's also quite a significant threat of unrest from issues that are unrelated to the election. So racial justice protests still remain pretty, pretty widespread throughout the US. But in, in contrast to earlier this summer, which had far more protests, now they're directly related to specific trigger events. Um, so just to kind of give two specific incidents currently going on, in, one in Indianapolis and the other is in, uh, in Georgia, where Ahmed Arbery's cases are being heard at the moment, guarding whether the, those accused of his murder will be granted a bond. Things like that are, are able to spark unrest. And then on the right wing side of things, I think 
the inauguration is, is obviously one. If Biden wins, then the inauguration ceremony will become an obvious target. COVID-19 measures, we're going into a Christmas period that will likely see more government restrictions and therefore anti-government attacks or anti-state level government attacks. And definitely pro-Biden marches between now and inauguration day. Um, demonstrations have accounted for 50% of the attacks and plots of right-wing groups this year. So demonstrations, marches, protests, those are all very likely to be the, uh, on, on the recipient, recipient end of um, attacks in the upcoming period. Yeah, thank you, James. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, what a Biden presidency will mean for, for racial justice and left-wing protests? Well, I mean, I think there are both positives and negatives in terms of the impact of his presidency on, on the likelihood of unrest. Um, on the more positive side, Biden has signaled that he's very willing to address a lot of the, the criticisms that racial justice movements like the Black Lives Matter movement have leveled at the, uh, at the system at the moment. For example, he, just to name a few, he's, he said that he's willing to, to set up a $20 billion grant program geared towards promoting crime prevention. And that comes under things like improving literacy. He's got a widespread plan to, to a pretty holistic plan to prevent reincarceration, which includes kind of guaranteeing housing for those who are finishing their sentences um, and, and access to educational and, and medical and mental health care for those who are previously incarcerated, as well as specific policing measures like uh, pushing for a ban on chokeholds and, and uh, wanting to rein in qualified immunity. Those are some things that will, will likely uh, kind of address some of the, the systemic um, issues that have been brought up by the racial justice protests. However, on, on the more kind of skeptical sides, since maybe about August, the, the protests have largely now been triggered by specific events rather than the systemic, perceived systemic racial injustice as a whole. Um, so for example, just after the Breonna Taylor ruling uh, and most recently in, in, and in Clinton County, Georgia. So I think there is an element of this that is beyond Biden's control and it will take a while until his reforms, if they do at all, uh, managed to kind of weed out this, this level of systemic racism within the police department in the US, which would then have a knock-on effect of, of reducing the, the likelihood of unrest. Terrific. Well, then let's look kind of on, on, on the other side. What does a, a Biden presidency mean for right-wing terrorism and militia groups? On, on the, the negative side, um, there are a couple policies from, from Biden's administration that, that would impact um, and increase the likelihood of, of far-right attacks. If we divide right-wing terrorism kind of broadly into both anti-government and xenophobic terrorism, regarding the first, Biden has signaled or at least not you know, separated himself from the idea of expanding statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. He's also been unwilling to comment on whether or not he'll pack the Supreme Court, which both of those two measures would, would likely induce some sort of backlash, uh, possibly military or extremist backlash. COVID-19, as we saw, as you mentioned earlier with Governor Gretchen Whitmer, COVID-19 mandates have, have been a, a trigger and Biden has signaled he's, he wants to instate a national mask mandate and going to governors and then to local mayors if the governors refuse. He would also be be likely to push some sort of gun restriction agenda similar to what Obama tried to do, whether that's successful or not, is kind of beside the point in terms of its impact on right-wing terrorist 
organizations and, and their perceived threat to their Second Amendment rights, which may trigger a response from them. Um, in terms of xenophobic e extremism, Biden has said that he's more likely to allow uh, asylum seekers into the US. He wants to reverse the, the quote unquote Muslim ban and reverse this kind of trend over the past few years of, of decreasing a refugee limit. And whilst all of those measures aren't necessarily likely to attract huge numbers of, uh, of migrants, especially in light of COVID-19, its portrayal in the media certainly has the potential to, to exacerbate fears um, within the right-wing community of too, too many migrants coming in and therefore resulting in some sort of backlash attack. On the positive side, Biden is, is pretty likely to disavow right-wing extremism and um, in the same way that quotes from Trump have been utilized by, for example, the Proud Boys to, to be seen as endorsing them, uh, Biden is unlikely to create that sort of environment. Um, there's also a chance that Biden would create some sort of environment conducive to encouraging greater cooperation between departments, both public and private, to tackle uh, right-wing extremism. Um, earlier this year in, in October, Department of Homeland Security said the right-wing extremism was the, the greatest threat to homeland security. And then third, in the ways that right-wing extremism this year has is, is grown in, in some respects as a response to, to left-wing extremism and groups like Antifa and vice versa, they've created this sort of cyclical pattern of escalating violence using the opposite side as a, as a rally, as a call to arms. And in the ways that a Biden administration would help reduce left-wing extremism, there is also a, a, a kind of knock-on effect there that right-wing extremism may subsequently also reduce. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Well, now maybe taking a chance to pivot a bit to, to foreign relations. Amy, starting with key partnerships closer to home, uh, you know, what, what, what might we be looking for in, in Latin America? Thanks, Greg. Yes, yeah, so beginning, as you say, over in the, the Western Hemisphere, I think two of the key countries or key relationships to watch in this regard will be with Mexico and with Brazil. So starting with Mexico, President Lopez Obrador, or AMLO as he's commonly known, has actually avoided congratulating Biden yet on his win. And this is likely in part due to a similar, very close race experience that he ultimately lost out on in AMLO's own electoral history. So maybe a bit of synergy or perhaps even sympathy there with, with Trump. And I also think it's, it's an attempt to avoid creating any unnecessary friction with Washington during the transition period. And while this doesn't exactly create the best initial footing for his relationship with Biden, ultimately both presidents are, of course, aware of the high degree of economic interdependence between their two countries. So we therefore expect a conducive and constructive dialogue to emerge that serves to reduce some of the tensions created during the Trump administration. You know, Biden's approach is, isn't really going to involve tariffs and threats in, in the same way that we saw under his predecessor. So it's generally looking to be a notably less volatile relationship in the years ahead, which of course delivers that important degree of stability and certainty for the many businesses that operate across that border. So then looking to Brazil, President Bolsonaro has also so far failed to congratulate Biden, which perhaps comes as less of a surprise given that he publicly endorsed Trump's campaign and has generally been a, a big fan of his US counterpart. And in this case, I think it, this is more of a likely precursor to a kind of more rocky relationship ahead, 
especially in areas like climate change and deforestation, which are famously touchy subjects for Bolsonaro, who's a known climate change skeptic, while Biden has made pledges to act in these areas. Um, but that said, you know, Biden has expressed an interest in keeping Brazil as a close partner, you know, given how frosty things are and, and how frosty they're likely to remain with China, having a good relationship with the major economy that is Brazil is in some ways more important now than ever. So we do expect to see progression towards a kind of pragmatic cordiality, I suppose, in, in this regard. Good, thank you. Uh, so then uh, moving across to Europe, what are you looking for there? Well, looking first at ourselves here in the UK, the most immediate impact of Biden's victory, and certainly that which has been talked about most over here, I think is with regard to his strong stance on Brexit, and specifically on the controversial internal market bill, which is contrary to that of the UK government. And despite losing a vote on this in the House of Lords this week, the UK government is still very determined to pass the bill in its full form with the controversial articles in place. And not only is this, of course, proving a sticking point for the EU, but it's also something that Biden has said would basically rule out a trade agreement between London and Washington. So Biden's win certainly makes things more complicated and potentially much more challenging for the UK as the government seeks to secure international support for its post-Brexit future. I think you know, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson may also remind President Biden a little bit too much of his own predecessor, He's made a few remarks along these lines. Yeah, I don't think we necessarily have the most natural cast, shall we say, for a rebuilding of the special relationship. Um, and then turning to look across to the other side of the continent, to Russia, Biden has long been a pretty staunch critic of the Putin and the Kremlin. So it looks pretty unlikely that relations will improve much from their current low ebb. And meanwhile, further sanctions potentially impacting major international infrastructure projects like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the European companies involved in this are definitely possible in the new year. That said though, I think the Biden administration is likely to be a more predictable partner or opponent or whatever you want to call it for Putin than was the case with Trump. So in some areas such as reaching an agreement on nuclear arms controls ahead of the expiration of the new START treaty in, in February next year, which had completely stalled under Trump, you know, we might now see some more progress. Okay, thank you. And that makes me think next of uh, looking then to the Middle East uh, and, and, and how this may, may extend there as well. Sure, yeah. Well, starting with Iran, we're predicting a notably less hostile stance under Biden than was the case under Trump. And an easing off of the tensions, you know, which, to be honest, couldn't really have got much worse. And we're now, I think, far more likely to see a return to negotiations around the 2015 nuclear deal which could then in turn lead to a reduction in the risk of attacks on U.S. assets in the region by Iranian militias and proxies. So then turning to Saudi Arabia, um, it's almost kind of a reverse of this dynamic. So the Saudi and, and other Gulf states like the UAE enjoyed very good relations with the U.S. and you know, virtually unqualified support under Trump, which we now expect to, to dissipate under Biden. So these states are in, in, in some sense kind of the biggest losers from a Biden victory. And, and we'd expect less support for Saudi's military campaign in Yemen and, and much more scrutiny over human rights issues as a result. And then lastly for this region, uh, Israel. So Biden is committed to maintaining the US's good relationship with Israel, but we expect that he won't offer the same kind of unmitigated support for the country and for Netanyahu that Trump had. 
We believe he's likely to take a tougher stance on things like Israeli attempts to annex West Bank settlements. But at the same time, he's unlikely to do a complete U-turn. So we don't think Biden's likely to reverse decisions made by Trump, such as the embassy move to Jerusalem, for example. Great. Thank you. Uh, and then lastly, how about the in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, in terms of U.S.-China relations, I think a key area that everyone's going to be watching um, as Biden takes the helm Ultimately, we don't really anticipate any fundamental change. While Biden may not be as antagonistic, shall we say, towards China, um, we do definitely expect him to keep up pressure on the country with regard to human rights violations, you know, and, and Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and, and in Hong Kong, um, and also on technology, trade and the economy. So we really don't expect any notable reduction in tensions here. And the environment for Western businesses in China will remain challenging as a result. Um, although that said, Biden is likely to take a more nuanced and, and perhaps a more collaborative approach to dealing with China. So, for example, we expect him to be looking to Europe and perhaps to the Indo-Pacific Alliance as well. And then lastly, just to, to finish by touching on North Korea, um, a Biden presidency is likely to mean a return to the U.S.'s more traditional stance of non-engagement, as opposed to Trump's diplomatic forays which, you know, while they made for some good photo ops, ultimately didn't prove particularly successful in achieving any substantive progress towards denuclearization. So yes, we predict that the, the kind of long familiar frosty stalemate will endure, probably marked by some fiery rhetoric here and there and the occasional missile test um, as Kim Jong-un tries to grab back Washington's attention in, in the way they know best. But we don't really see the overall risk of a conflict on the peninsula as likely to change from its current relatively low level. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I, I like that little bit of uh, a splash of good news there. You know, then you're kind of taking a, a, a last opportunity for, for comment on kind of both domestic and international uh, elements of this. James, uh, it, what are some of your key takeaways for, for what you're, you're looking at on, on U.S. election issues? Yeah, so I, I mean, I would start with the fact that racial justice protests certainly do not present the same threat to business operations, whether that's through rioting or looting, um, as they did, say, at the, the height of the summer. And are now far more isolated, um, not only to specific cities, but also specific trigger events. Um, and that will likely remain the case going forward, especially with the Biden administration appeasing some of the, the calls for systemic changes. On the right wing side, um, this is certainly a development that has grown over 2020 with new methods. For example, car vehicle ramming is, has been uh, a new tactic of right wing groups, and they've certainly expanded their um, their, their reach this year. And that's definitely likely to continue into 2021, if not least just because of kind of anti-government sentiment that is, has been fostered in the past couple of years and will likely grow with, with a number of different policies that the Biden administration is likely to undertake. Got it. Thank you. And so then uh, to you, Amy, cl closing thoughts from your perspective. Well, I think to sum up on the, on the foreign relations side, the United States relationship with the rest of the world, you know, has been heavily impacted in the last four years by the personality and the style of Donald Trump as president. And I think now moving forward with Biden in charge, you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a bit like pushing a reset button, um, taking us back much more closely to how things were under Obama, which I think ties in with some of what James has been saying about the domestic situation as well. 
you know, generally returning to a bit of a more rules and norms based approach to diplomacy. We expect more collaboration, more multilateralism, less volatility, less polarization. And I think even in relationships where significant differences and disparities, whether economic or ideological or a bit of both, you know, while, you know, while these will remain and relationships will still be frosty, there'll be more pragmatism and less scope for sudden escalations and tensions and the type of tit for tat race to the bottom that we've seen in some areas in recent years. Terrific. Uh, Amy, James, uh, thank you both very much for uh, bringing uh, at least a sliver of, of clarity to this uh, utterly vexing uh, election season that we've had over here, and particularly for how this is looking to wind up impacting global and multilateral relations uh, into 2021. Thank you both so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And now we are joined by Ed Johnson, our Insight Team Manager, for our usual look at the events and, and things to watch for the week ahead. Ed has been busy consulting his, his crystal ball to share with us some of, some of these insights and forecast on, on, on what, we're to, what we're to be looking at. Uh, Ed, uh, what are, uh, what, what's the crystal ball saying? Hi, Greg. Uh, thanks very much. Well, uh, I guess we've got a fairly busy week ahead again. It's just uh, that time of year, it seems. In Asia-Pacific, we've got the signing of an imminent and long-awaited free trade agreement, which is involving up to 15 nations, uh, all 10 ASEAN nations, plus China, South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. And they will sign on, on Sunday, the 15th of November, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. is is pretty substantial. It will create Asia's largest free trade zone um, and you know, covering up to 30% of, of global GDP and trade. So very significant development in that regard. You know, as part of that, we're going to see lower tariffs and other barriers of trade um, being being removed among uh, participating states and really going to drive in the longer term, drive forward uh, greater economic productivity in the region. And of course, this is vital in uh, given the, the concerns and considerations of the, the economic impact of the coronavirus and the, the COVID-19 outbreak, and not just in Asia, but uh, worldwide, really. Um, on, a, on a sort of side note, the, the signing of the Regional Comprehensive and Economic Partnership is, is a, a further sign of China's significant and growing uh, clout in regional trade and economic affairs, you know, particularly in light of the, the US's withdrawal from the Pan-Pacific trade deal. Um, you know, it's something that perhaps will come into light um, from, from January onwards under, under a different administration. Speaking of the US, I think you know, it's been touched on earlier in the podcast, uh, we're expecting to see a substantial number of demonstrations across the United States this uh, Saturday, uh, most notably in, in Washington, D.C. itself, where the Stop the Steel and Million MAGA March uh, will be no doubt well attended um, and increasing the, the scope for confrontation between right and uh, left-wing protesters there uh, with, with militias on, on the right-wing uh, right side, such as the Proud Boys likely to be, to be present, as well as um, extremist participants from the left-wing side. Yeah, thank you, Ed. You know, that's certainly uh, of concern for me here in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And I, I recall uh, the week before the election, the uh, the Trump train phenomenon manifested here in, in the D.C. region with, uh, among other things, a, a pretty significant slowdown tactic on, on the major highway in the region that, uh, that circles the city, um, which probably did very little to ingratiate any potential voters who were stuck in traffic in an unexpected slowdown. 
I know many many friends and colleagues are, are certainly uh, avoiding um, a lot of the major downtown GC areas as the the ultimate turnout uh, is really kind of a bit of an unknown question. Certainly, there, there's speculation that it'll, that it'll be uh, quite sizable, and um, there could be some uh, rather significant possibilities for unrest and and and, and even some even violence on on the fringes. Um, similar to uh, what, what was seen uh, last week with some some confrontations and at least one instance of a, a, a stabbing um, involving some far right wing group. Um, you know, be, beyond that, uh, you know, where else are you uh, and, and the team looking to focus your attention in the coming week? Certainly, uh, elsewhere, you know, in, in Eurasia and Moldova, we've got a presidential runoff vote between the nominally pro-European and pro-Russian candidate. And as with uh, many other elections in Eurasia in, in 2020, um, there's certainly potential for, for unrest and electoral disruption after the election. I would suggest as well, we should, we should maintain an eye on Armenia, given the um, unrest that has broken out there following the uh, signing of the um, peace agreement that I believe was, was touched on earlier. Um, in, in other sort of election news, we've got um, municipal elections in Brazil, which will serve as a a referendum on President's, President Bolsonaro's uh, two years in charge. And uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how his support has weathered the coronavirus and indeed um, if he's still able to mobilise the Conservative support uh, moving forward to, to the beginning of a re-election campaign. Elsewhere in, in Lebanon, uh, the country's introducing a two-week lockdown, uh, which will put further pressure on the authorities and could spark further unrest as well in the wake of the blast, obviously, and the fairly uh, tight economic circumstances that the, the country's facing at the moment. So that you, again, another example of those COVID restrictions serving as a, a potential trigger for unrest. And finally, you know, just when we haven't spoken about it for quite a while, um, it's, it's a big week ahead in, in Brexit negotiations uh, with the 19th of November viewed as a final deadline for a draft Brexit deal by both uh, the UK and Brussels with uh, Michel Barnier, uh, the chief negotiate, negotiator, suggesting that if no deal is, is reached by, by the 19th, that uh, any, any sort of future trade deal is, is unlikely at that point, in which case Britain would leave under the current arrangements onto WTO rules on the 31st of December. Terrific. Thank you, Ed. And with that, also, again, in, in sum, my thanks to uh, Liana and Alex and Amy and James for our conversations earlier. To our, our clients and friends listening, thank you again for uh, sharing some of your time with us. Uh, as always, should any of these topics spark some interest or questions for you, please don't hesitate to be in touch. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you and have a wonderful rest of your day and weekend.